Radio Mano Papachango. This episode is uh, with a guy named Charles who was helping to run one of the biggest marijuana smuggling operations into the U.S. in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, very interesting cat, a friend of a friend. Um, he just wanted to be known as Charles. We won't be using any last names in this episode for obvious reasons, although he has paid his debt to society. He did some time in prison, as you'll hear. Luckily, he got busted uh, just before the minimum mandatory sentencing laws went into effect. Uh, so he was able to get in and out relatively quickly. Um, you'll hear all the details of that in the episode. You'll hear that he um, and his compadres started in Colombia uh, they took a shrimp boat down to Colombia and loaded it up in the early 70s with some weed, and uh, and then it moved on to military transport planes and all sorts of stuff before they were done. They uh, they ran drugs out of uh, Jamaica, Colombia, and Belize over the years, mostly marijuana, a little coke, but mostly marijuana. And now he uh, is still working with marijuana. Um, he and his wife make um, salves and um, creams and medicines and edibles and stuff. So I guess I can't really tell you. I'd love to put you in touch so you can buy some stuff from him because I was there. We, we recorded in his little laboratory area there. And um, man, the guy really knows what he's doing. But I don't think I can put you in touch with him because that would sort of, you know, blow his cover, I guess. So we won't do that. Uh, just a quick shout out to a guy I went to high school with. I got a, a Facebook thing today from Jim. Hey, Jim. Uh, I haven't seen Jim since what, 1980, probably, or 79. We went to high school together in Connecticut. And uh, we're Facebook friends, but haven't interacted for a long time. And anyway, today I got a thing saying, yeah, I just listened to that episode with Pre and, uh, you know, just wanted to tell you, you know, how interesting it was. It's like, Jim, Jim from high school listens to the podcast. Man, that's strange. So, uh, hi, Jim. Long time no see, buddy. Um, okay. So I was thinking, speaking of Jim. Uh, another friend of mine on Facebook wrote something recently where she she said to people, um, hey, you know, okay, I've got a friend who's famous, but that doesn't mean I'll put you in touch with him. And da, 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 da. and I was reading it thinking, what's what's all this about? It's kind of strange. And then I realized that I'm I'm the person she's referring to. I guess people have been asking her to put them in touch with me for some reason. And she was telling them like, hey, back off. He's my friend. That doesn't mean... You know, I'm going to like put him in touch with everybody. And and it just made me, it, it really struck me how strange that whole thing is. Um, because I think that anybody who is 
in any way um, famous or extremely wealthy or extremely beautiful or whatever it is, if they're not complete assholes, then there's a big part of them that feels like a fraud. Like I used to live with these fashion models, as you've heard me talk about in the past, and the ones who were cool were funny. Um, and I think, you know, pretty much that's, you could say that about anybody, but especially about people who are in some sort of, you know, extraordinary, meaning that literally non-ordinary um, situation, they have to be funny because they realize that it's such bullshit and if they take it seriously, then they buy into something that is very, very toxic because they know in their hearts that they're no different from anybody else. I was watching uh, the European soccer championships last night, and there's this guy, Cristiano Ronaldo, this Portuguese guy. Uh, he's actually from uh, Cabo Verde, I believe, out in the middle of the Atlantic, as as am I at the moment, out in the middle of the Atlantic. And... Uh, and this guy is such a dick. He's such a whiny piece of shit. He's a very good soccer player, of course, and he's super good looking. And he, But he plucks his eyebrows. And you can tell the guy just spends so much time looking at himself in the mirror. And he's such a dick. He's always complaining that the you know his teammate didn't pass it the right way at the right time. And the referee should have called that and didn't call this. And just a f- fucking whinger. Um and I think the problem with Ronaldo is probably the same problem, you know, I don't know, Jay-Z or, uh, you know, these kind of people have, is that they take the shit seriously. And once once you start taking the shit seriously, then everything falls apart. Because here's the thing. Cristiano Ronaldo takes a shit and it stinks. Cristiano Ronaldo picks his fucking nose and farts in bed and does all the stuff that everybody does. But his public image doesn't include any of that stuff. And he's bought into the public image as believing that's who he actually is, that he's actually this really important person because he can run fast and kick a fucking ball better than most people. And so deep down inside, he knows he's full of shit. But because he doesn't incorporate that being full of shit into his personality, he's got a very deep crack right through the center of who he is. And I saw the same thing with the fashion models. The ones who had their shit together were the ones who openly and quickly acknowledged what a bunch of bullshit it is that they get paid a lot of money to stand around in a dress or or in a fucking smoking jacket and, you know, other people don't. Uh, they have to acknowledge what a bunch of bullshit that is. Otherwise, they become insufferable assholes. So I think that everybody who's cool uh, knows they're full of shit. I think that that must be some sort of like essential quality of people who have their shit together like uh you know i'm thinking of somebody like rogan who's you know significantly famous he refers to himself as a d-list celebrity i think that's so funny you know he doesn't even call himself b-list or c-list it's d-list so yeah if rogan's a d-list celebrity i'm like w or something so um anyway i don't know what that has to do with any of this shit
It's Amazon time, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is. It's the end of the month. I just want to go through a few of these beautiful things that you have bought through my account uh, at chrisryanphd.com. Hey, that PhD is really important, too. I think that's what got me the porn award, by the way. All you people who give me shit for having a PhD in my my uh, webpage or whatever, I think that's why I got the porn award because I was the only, you know, what's his name with the big dick? He doesn't have a PhD. Um, you know who I'm talking about, the gopher, the hedgehog, can't remember his name. Ron Jeremy. He doesn't have a PhD. If he had a PhD, he would have won that award for best non-sexual performance. I think that's that might be what I call my autobiography. Would that be a good title for the autobiography? Best Non-Sexual Performance by Christopher Ryan, Ph.D. Anyway, uh, somebody bought the Fiesta Wild Animals Series 40-inch two-hump camel through my website. Yes, they did. And that got $13.57 donated to this podcast to which you are listening right now. Thank you, two-hump camel purchaser. Somebody else in the tools and hardware section got the uh, Home Flex. 75-foot corrugated tubing, stainless steel, that brought 14 bucks into the podcast. Thank you, corrugated steel tubing person. Maybe the same person, I don't know, but somebody bought a DeVault 20-volt max lithium-ion 3.0 hammer drill and impact driver combo kit. That got 16 bucks to the podcast. See, this shit adds up. It's fantastic. And you were going to buy that DeVault thing anyway, right? Why not just do it through chrisryanphd.com, the Amazon ad? And as you know, you click on the Amazon ad once, bookmark that, and then just use that as your Amazon link, and everything will uh, supposedly go to the podcast. Although I try to buy shit through my own link, and sometimes it doesn't work. I bought a friend uh, an iPad recently, and I bought it through my own link. And I don't see it anywhere in this report. So I don't know. Maybe I can't buy shit through my own. What else? Somebody bought a Hyperlite Mountain Gear 440 Porter Backpack. 47, no, 4,272 cubic inches. That's a big-ass backpack. So I guess you're going somewhere. Good for you. That brought 29 bucks into the podcast. Uh, Vortex Razor Red Dot Sight. Oh, it's a hunter, I guess. Hope it's a hunter. Uh, got a laser sight for their gun. That brought 31 bucks into the podcast. Thank you. Software. Someone bought Acid Pro 7. I don't know what that is, but it brought 11 bucks into the podcast. Somebody bought some nice shit for their dog. Tiki Dog Canned Food for Dogs. Maui Chicken and Sweet Potato. <laughs> Maui Chicken. What the fuck is Maui Chicken? Is that like wild chickens running around on Maui that they, they catch and grind them up into dog food? I hope not. Okay, somebody bought a longboard, loaded boards, poke longboard, deck only, 13 bucks to the podcast. Thank you. I might learn how to surf. I'm thinking I might come down off the mountain next month and uh, potentially rent an apartment. I saw there was a, a sublet available down in the town of Las Palmas, the city. And there's this big beach, and uh, apparently it's one of the best places in the world to learn surfing. So I might, I might give that another shot, or I might just bodyboard. In any case, uh, there's much better Wi-Fi connection down there. 
let's see what else we've got uh, somebody bought a coaster sleeper bench ottoman don't know what that is but it brought 29 dollars to the podcast so cool somebody got a 12 inch gel memory foam mattress wow gel i wonder what that's like okay somebody got a socket mobile bluetooth cordless hand scanner Now, at first I thought that was for scanning hands, which seems kind of creepy. And then it occurred to me that it's probably just a handheld scanner. In any case, it brought $16 into the podcast. Thank you. All right, I'm almost done here. Uh, I'm only going to do this once a month when I remember. So it'll probably be less than once a month. Uh, Somebody got a QSC padded speaker bag which cost a shit ton of money. Holy. No, they've got four of them. That's all oh, they bought, four of them. So that brought 32 bucks into the podcast. Thank you so much. Somebody got the blue microphone, the Yeti USB, the same thing I use. Uh, that brought in 10 bucks. So maybe you're starting a podcast. Good luck to you on that. Um, although you'll have your own Amazon link up pretty soon. Yeah, but thank you. Uh Somebody bought some cookware, stainless steel cookware set. Somebody got um, a rice cooker. Nice. Cast iron, cast iron skillet. Oh, you can never go wrong with a lodge preseason cast iron skillet. Uh, that's good for camping. You can do anything with that. You can like beat a bear over the head with it. Uh, okay, I'm almost done with this. I know some of you find this amusing. Some of you find it boring as hell. I apologize to those of you who find it boring as hell. Um, home, Allen, Breathe Smart, customizable air purifier with HEPA silver filter to remove allergies, mold, and bacteria. Holy shit, 52 bucks to the podcast. Thank you so much. Somebody got MyZen Home Floor Lounger. 11 bucks. Thank you. Hope you enjoy your MyZen Home Floor Lounger. Somebody got a Hypersphere three-speed localized vibration therapy ball. Oh, yeah. Ideal for myofacial release. I'll bet it is. Deep tissue massage. Oh, yeah. I know what that means. I have brought, speaking of deep tissue massage, for some reason, the magic wand, formerly known as the Hitachi magic wand. uh, Hitachi, it's like the, the most beloved vibrator in the world, but because Hitachi is apparently run by some real uptight Japanese people, they don't want their name associated with it. So they spun, they finally spun off the division that was making the vibrator. And now it's just called the magic wand. But it's like, if you know a woman who has trouble having orgasms, you get her one of these things because if this doesn't do the trick, then, then it's probably psychological. Um, because, I mean, holy cow, these things are very effective. So much so that over the years living in Spain, I have uh, wanted to gift them to various people, and they don't make them for 220 current. So I bring them from the U.S. I probably brought, I don't know, 10 of these things over from the U.S., and and then I get the, you know, converter and I explain to the woman, you can't plug it directly into the wall. You have to plug it into the converter and then plug the converter into the wall. It's a lot of rigmarole to go to, but go through. But, um, you know, it works. Uh, they work. They definitely work. Somebody got some New Balance men's country walking shoes. Nice. I hope you uh, walk through a lot of country in those shoes. People buy Amazon gift cards every month. It's really cool uh, for dads. It looks like a lot of Father's Day stuff. 
Thank you for uh, doing that through the website. That brings in a few bucks every time you do it, which is very cool. Somebody got a really nice camera, a Sony Alpha mirrorless digital camera, 16 to 50 millimeter lens that brought 40 bucks into the podcast. Thank you so much. And last but not least, my thanks to whoever bought Victoria's Secret, very sexy push-up demi-bra beige black 34D. That didn't bring a lot into the podcast, but it's really nice to read it there. Okay. I'm going to play some of the music I'm going to play in this podcast. I'll just drop it in there occasionally, one or two cuts. It'll be from Bill Laswell's remix of uh, Bob Marley's music. Uh, The record's called Dreams of Freedom. And I think what I'll do is just use the song Waiting in Vain. It's, It's so nice and so spacey. Bill Laswell just does amazing stuff. He also has a a remix album of Miles Davis's music. Maybe I'll throw some of that in one of these days. Um, But if you like like this kind of groovy reimagining of music that you already know, definitely get a hold of Dreams of Freedom and or uh, Miles Davis's music. I don't remember what that's called, but I'll tell you another day. All right, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Charles. This is from Waiting in Vain, uh, Bill Laswell's remix of Bob Marley's music, and the record is called Dreams of Freedom. Charles, a friend of a friend who has generously invited me into uh, the inner sanctum here where there are, what, four pots cooking of uh, tincture under preparation. And it's like a a scientist, a chemist lab in here. It's beautiful. Thank you. And uh, we were just talking about, uh, we have a mutual friend who put us in touch and he just mentioned you briefly to me because he listens to the podcast and he said oh I've, i have a friend you should really talk to charles he's had a lot of adventures over the years so you we just started talking about um smuggling you were in the 70s you said right yeah i we did our first smuggling venture in the early 70s mm-hmm. we took a shrimp boat from florida the panhandle of florida and went to Riohacha in Colombia and loaded up a shrimp boat with uh, Santa Marta gold. 
Oh, nice. And how did how did that come to to pass? Did you had you been to Columbia before? No, you know this was <laughs> uh, the early seventies. Right. Um, people had been going to Mexico and Colombia and, and enjoying themselves immensely. Yeah. And uh, an outgrowth of that was uh, hippies, primarily, uh, becoming smugglers. Right, trying to make some money. Yeah, I've, I, I met a guy who uh, was smuggling from Nepal to England. He was, you ever see those top deck buses, those double decker British mm -hmm. buses? There was a company that drove them from London to Nepal and back. They would do these trips and all these young people would hang out in them and uh, I guess they slept downstairs and they would sit upstairs so they had the view and beautiful ride. But this guy was the mechanic and I got to know him in Kathmandu and he was, every, every trip back from Nepal he had just big, you know, blocks of hash stashed away in the chassis somewhere. You have to take the whole thing apart to find it. Yeah, interesting. I I, I had a, a thing in Amsterdam. I used to send hash back to myself when it was illegal in Spain. And I think it was the perfect system because I would send it to my address, but in the name of somebody who had lived there years before. And then if you know never never got a note saying go to the post office to sign for anything i wouldn't have done that but it arrived and i would just leave it by the door unopened for a couple of weeks i figured in worst case scenario if they were tracing it and they came and broke down the door they'd find it sitting by the door unopened and i'd say i don't know it's someone who used to live here i guess i think that was fail safe but those are famous last words amen <laughs> <clears throat> so so uh, so you guys just, you and a couple of friends, just buy a boat and roll into Columbia? Well, I mean, we were living on the Panhandle, and so there are boats everywhere. Right. So it was just coordinating with someone who was a young person who had a shrimp boat mm -hmm. and bringing up the subject and getting people to think it was, yeah, let's do it. So how hard was it to connect with people in Columbia? It was really easy. Mm. I mean, I actually watched the business change dramatically right. between 73 and 83. In 73, we would go down and purchase the product ourselves. And, you know, f fast forward a decade later, and you were a middleman. Mm. You were no longer uh, someone who was running your whole operation. Because you didn't have access to the growers. No. Yeah. It was completely, it went from, you know, hippies going down and buying pot and having a good time to cartels, yeah. basically, who had sewed everything up. And by the time the 80s, even the late 70s, Basically, what you were doing is you were transporting something for somebody else. Well, they had buyers waiting back in the U.S. Right. So basically, the only thing that we were able to offer anybody was the fact that we could 
fly the product or sell the product and get it into the United States. Mm. So that it, and we would get a percentage of the load for ourselves as our profit. Uh, so they weren't paying you in money. They were then you had to move whatever right. you ended up with. Exactly. And they've got a lot of the distribution networks sewn up on the U.S. as well, I guess. Right. They did, but that was their distribution network, right. and then we had our own. Uh-huh. So what? what's the hardest part of, of an operation like that? I would say the most complicated portion is getting off the ground wherever you are, either Jamaica or Columbia, and landing when you get back to the United States and unloading. Mm-hmm. Those are the the most complicated portions of the operation. Yeah. Did you, when you first did it, were you just thinking, I'll do this once and that'll be it? Or or did you have uh, ambitions to... No. I, you know, it was just something to do for fun. Mm. And like so many things, it just grew. You know, you get involved in something, you do something, you have a good time. And you want to continue it. You make some money and yeah. Yeah. So early 70s, Colombian weed was about the best. It was at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't, I was, I was a kid. I, I started smoking weed late 70s and then early 80s I was in college. And yeah, it was still, you'd buy $40 ounces with seeds and clean it on a double album. Mm-hmm. Layla, Derek and the Dominoes was my go-to weed cleaning album. Yeah. I can remember when, uh, you know, you'd buy pot and you actually would get an ounce. Yeah. And then one day I went in to buy some pot from my local distributor and it was no longer an ounce, it was a lid was called a lid right. and I said well what's the difference between an ounce and a lid and the guy said three grams <laughs> really <laughs> yeah At the same price right instead of getting an ounce which uh, has 28 grams yeah. you'd get a lid which was 25 grams do you know where the term comes from a lid I don't uh, maybe the lid on some something yeah I don't know I, I never I don't think I ever dealt with lids I it was always ounces, and then it, you know, when it got stronger, it was, you know, quarter ounces and eighth, and, you know, and so on. But uh, have you ever been to Nepal? No. I met these guys. I was in Nepal in winter, it was February, and I ran into these two guys. You might actually know these guys. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, just because they came from Berkeley, it, it occurred to me. Um, they had an operation. The one guy was a backhoe operator. And the other guy was a plant geneticist. I like so one guy like PhD, I think, at Berkeley in plant genetics, and the other guy, you know, blue collar. But they were friends from childhood, and they had this thing where the backhoe operator had like cut a, a clearing somewhere in some national forest, and they had a grow operation up there. And they told me, what were they doing? They had like water beds waterbed mattresses and they would in the rainy season they funneled water into the waterbed mattress on a hillside and then when that was filled 
they close that off and then they plant and then in the dry season they had a drip system run from the bottom of the waterbed mattress so that big bladder full of water from the rainy season would just drip in the plants they had a good system worked out um anyway they had just had a harvest and uh and they had a bunch of money and they were sitting around smoking one night and said let's go somewhere let's do a trip okay where should we go well, let's go to nepal because i'd like to get a fast growing uh bushy seed that i can you know start to do some research and bring some of these characteristics into our thing so they just jumped on a plane and flew to nepal they didn't have any jackets they had no idea it was freezing cold <laughs> and they had been there like a day when i met them and they were uh, running around Nepal looking for what they called the, what was it the Sacred Valley or the Magic Valley or something where they were going to find these plants. You know, hmm. and I don't know why I launched into that story. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Well, hopefully they brought some good genetics back. Yeah, I think they did. They they had met a next time I saw them. They had met a Nepali guy who was, you know, showing them around, and they found some jackets. That was the main thing. Hmm. Anyway, so um, so we're back in. You mentioned Jamaica. You were picking up stuff in Jamaica, as right? Well. We did Colombia a couple of times in large shrimp boats, and in the two-year period that we were going down there, the United States government upped the ante a little bit in that mm. they had planes flying back and forth between basically Cuba and Mexico where they would, you know, they were looking for smuggling boats. Right. So... How would they know? Because there are shrimp boats out there, right? Right. You know, they would look at the rigging, you know, mm -hmm. what are you doing so far away? Right. How come you're all the way down here? And uh, so we moved to Jamaica. Mm and started using small airplanes and flying in and out of Jamaica. And we had a very sweet setup there mm. for almost a decade. Really? And w was it the same guys that you'd been, you started with? Yes. We had a little cell that I basically worked with for, you know, nine years. And how were you feeling about the, the risk? Because, I mean, it started to heat up, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I discovered that uh, people have different addictions. I never understood what mine was. And mm. then I realized that I was a thrill junkie. Mm. And that, to me, there was nothing more exciting than, you know, blitzing an airport in Tennessee with 10,000 pounds of pot. <laughs> Is that what your shipments were, 10,000 pounds? The largest one we ever did was... Uh, close to 12,000 pounds in a DC-6. Wow. DC, was that two engine? That's a four engine. Four engine plane. And there was actually an article about it in High Times because we had to leave it on the airstrip. When wow. the plane landed, a couple of the tires blew out. And so when it went down the runway, the wing was dipped into the... Oh man! Yeah, it was it was pretty were pretty you, squirrely. Were you on the plane? I was part of the team that unloaded it. So you were standing there watching the plane come in, right? 
and amazingly everything worked out we were able to unload the plane but our plan was I had actually brought a uh, aviation fuel truck there to refuel it and we were going to reuse the airplane uh, but we had to just leave it all we left the plane we left the fuel truck and there's like pot everywhere mm. and this airplane that had you know made a mess of the the portion of the runway uh, so when they all arrived for work in the morning uh, there was they were pretty surprised <laughs> so this was an airplane that an airport that shut down for the night and exactly you guys just... we just blitzed it oh man which is what we did uh, and what's interesting is that when we first started we came into Florida and then we moved to Georgia and then we moved to South Carolina and then we moved to North Carolina and then we went to Tennessee then we were in southern Indiana then we were in southern Illinois and within a 10-year period we were going not into Florida but going into northern Illinois and the whole idea all the time was to be landing someplace where they weren't expecting smugglers. Right. So you're always moving further north. And did you have any close calls in those in those days? Yeah, we had some close calls. I mean, we actually uh, had two planes that crashed. Uh, one crashed in Nassau at a refueling zone uh, and another it didn't crash but uh, it had the tire shot out of it in Colombia when some people discovered what was going on and decided they wanted to get some money out of it mm. and so they uh, shot one of the tires out on a DC-3, one of the nose tires, the nose tire, and uh, we had to pay them off and then it took a day to get someone in there to take care of the tire. Mm. Uh, but then everybody was happy and back slapping and you know we just took off and went on our way. Did you guys buy the planes? Yes. So you just bought them cash and then... Yeah. And were they essentially disposable? I mean, were you... Was the finances... You know, the, the hope always was to be able to reuse these yeah. airplanes uh, until they got either, you know, they were hot. Pilots are, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when you live at the coast, you're around fishermen. If you were one of the people who grew up near airports when you were a kid and maybe got into skydiving. So there was a real camaraderie between smugglers and skydivers. Really? Yeah, there's... Both thrill seekers. Both thrill seekers, but also they have a save fair around airports. Right. Uh, I mean, remember, this was the 70s. You could smoke and drink on an airplane. 
I had a friend who grew up on an airport. His dad owned the flight school, <clears throat> and they had a bunch of planes and a Learjet. And this was in the 70s, because I was in my early teens. And I look back on this now, and I'm sure his dad was a smuggler. His dad had a glass eye, and he was flying jets. Hmm. A one-eyed jet pilot. And he was... Um, there were a lot of guns around and a lot of um, interesting characters coming around the house. They were in western Pennsylvania, and he was away for long periods, and there was a bunch of money. And, and I look back on it now, it all makes sense. But anyway, so I, I, I know what you're saying. That kid, who was my, my best buddy, he was flying airplanes when he was like 13. It was like back in the car out of the garage, you know. He'd go up and fly around the airport. Yeah, interesting. So did you grow up around planes? No. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a white, upper-class enclave outside of New York City in northern New Jersey hmm. called Hohokus, New Jersey. Hohokus. <laughs> Never heard of it. Yeah. Very small town, When's like you... 15 miles from Manhattan. Uh -huh. And you were how old in like 65, 60? I graduated from high school in 63. Right. And I did a year of college on the East Coast and then transferred to UC Berkeley mm. and came here in the end of 65. Right, and was here of a cyclone. 65 through 68, and then went to Florida State to do some advanced studies. What were you studying? I did psychology at, at UC and at Florida State philosophy. Mm. Interesting. A good preparation for smuggling? Perfect. Yeah? <laughs> In what sense? Keep your wits. Ah, take take the larger perspective on things. Always. Yeah. Did you have like in your your crew? Was there a hierarchy? Was there someone? Oh was yeah, there charge? was a there was a brains in the operation. I my nickname for him was Sky King, from the TV program, mm. and uh, he was the type of person who, you know could have been a CEO of a corporation. Yeah. He had a mind like a steel trap. Mm. Um, he had a real good personality and he was a pilot oh. and skydiver. There you go. The little group that I was involved in, I was the only one who wasn't a world-class skydiver. Really? Yeah, everybody else was world-class. They all had, you know, two, 3,000 jumps. Wow. Um, have you have you done it? Not, not really. My cup of tea. All those years, you never did it. No. Adrenaline junkie that you are, and and hanging with those guys. Scared of heights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah, I've never done it either. I've done um, paragliding. You know, where you jump off a mountain with the parachute. Yeah, I'd be scared. I was scared. <laughs> Definitely, I did it in India. Uh, uh, probably about five hours away from the nearest hospital. But there was a German guy there who was given lessons for a hundred bucks or whatever it was for 10 lessons. And I think my, my cheapness, uh, 
trumped my cowardliness in that case because <laughs> I thought this is a bargain this is great <laughs> yeah but uh, it's not the same as jumping out of an airplane you know it was on a mountain maybe I don't know 200 meters 300 meters whatever and you just sort of the winds coming in your face and so you just sort of run off the edge and you, but you can feel the parachute holding you before you actually you know your feet leave the ground so that's different from just jumping out of an airplane and trusting that things are going to work out. So, uh, so you're doing this for 10 years and it was always weed? Did you get into cocaine? Or? Yeah, there was some coke on there at different times, but we were, we were really marijuana smugglers. Mm. And what, I mean, because the money must have been much better with coke. It's, it's smaller, lighter, you know, the volume is a whole different. Right. Were you not into it just because you guys liked weed, or and you had the yeah, connections? Yeah, I mean, or? the it's sort of like coke didn't even really come in until after we'd been smuggling for five mm. or six years. Really, I mean, coke didn't really hit the United States until the late seventies. Mm. In those years, were you and were there a lot of guns around, or was it no, no, not really. I mean, again, it was a bunch of hippies who were smoking marijuana in the United States and discovered that they could go somewhere and get it and bring it back themselves. Right. The first little smuggling thing I was involved in was actually in the late 60s. And somebody, you know, we collected money and sent two people down to Mexico. One of them was my girlfriend and another friend. And they went down and bought pot and brought it back. Had no trouble. And uh, that was a way to get good pot cheap. Yeah, it just made sense. And, you know, the first time we did it, everybody pooled their money. And, you know, by the second or third time someone was going down, it had turned into a for-profit business. Yeah. That's the way it goes. Do you ever go to Asia? No, just North and <clears throat> South America. Mm -hmm. There was a thing in, in Asia where, um, in the 60s and 70s, you reminded me when you mentioned that your girlfriend went to Mexico, when guys were coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan and into India, they would um, have their girlfriends just smuggle the hash because the, all the border police were men and they would never touch women. So they'd pat down the men, but the women, they'd just wave them through because of the cultural thing. It's like, what could be easier than that, you know? And then they finally started having women do it. So, uh, so, so your volumes are getting bigger and bigger. The money's getting bigger. Uh, you're getting attention. You're, just, you're getting the planes are getting bigger. You're flying into northern airports in the middle of the night. You left when you left the plane there. Did could they trace you? They couldn't trace the ownership of the truck or the plane. No, you mm -hmm. know it was all kind of subverted. <laughs> you know everything was done in cash. And, yeah. 
So you guys are learning as you go. There's no school where you learn how to do this stuff. There's nobody telling you. You didn't have a mentor saying, okay, now you got to make sure you take the serial number off the engine casing or whatever it is. No. I mean, one of the things we did was to... We had a friend who was an air traffic controller. Mm. And we would, if we were getting a new plane, we would fly it in his area so he could see whether there was a transponder on it. Ah. You know, those kind of things. Right. Again, you know, the government builds a 10-foot fence and the smuggler builds an 11-foot ladder. Right. So you're always trying to stay ahead of the game. Right. And uh, people are still doing that today. Yeah. Now they're going under the fence. Exactly. El Chapo. So, okay, you're sort of an expert in this area. I I don't believe El Chapo left the prison through that tunnel. I think he paid everybody off and he walked out the front door and stepped into a limo. I think the tunnel was just a face-saving measure so that the prison guys could say, oh, he went out through the tunnel, oh, we didn't see it coming. I can't believe... The guy's famous for building tunnels. He's got teams of engineers building tunnels under the border. And they've got a construction project half a mile away from the prison. And they don't notice this, you know, pile of dirt that's growing. And like, I just don't believe the the story. I think it's a cover story. And I've said that to some people and they think I'm crazy. Well, I don't think you're crazy, but uh, I think he has a lot of connections and just pays people off. Yeah. Do you think he'll get extradited? It'll take years. If he does, he'll never see the light of day. You know, they'll put him in that Supermax. place, Supermax in Colorado. Where uh, Noriega is, right? Is he still in there? Is he still alive? I don't know. That's like you say. And the other guy who uh, did the bombing in Oklahoma. Well, Timothy McVeigh. He was in there for a while. His buddy. Uh, oh, the guy who lived in the little tiny shack. The Unabomber. The Unabomber. He's there. Yeah. And actually, it's the guy who was with the guy from Oklahoma who's there. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I forget his name, but I know who you mean. So so what happened? How did it it end? It ended because uh, we crashed and burned. And... Not literally, but figuratively, in that in as we moved forward, the operation sort of got larger, as capitalism does, and mm-hmm. bigger. And there was a middleman, and the middleman, middle between us and at this at the end of our operation, we were back in Colombia again uh, because of the political situation had changed in Jamaica when uh, Siaga took over from Manly in Jamaica. This is in the late 70s and it became more complicated for a while to do business there so we had gone back to Colombia and the individual who was the point person for the Colombian connection, uh, eventually he got in trouble. And, you know, when he did, he just, 
gave up everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got arrested, <clears throat> I think there were like 40 something people were arrested, you know, like within 24 hours of each other all over the United States. Uh, most of them I didn't, I'd never seen or knew nothing about. But there were basically four or five different cells that all funneled out of this same middleman. And since they got him, they got all the cells. Uh, for every man in jail, there are a couple who aren't. The middleman was Colombian or American? No, he was a, a gringo. Uh, and the Americans got him. And the Americans got him, yeah. Right, right. And I don't know exactly how they got onto him. He was a jet pilot, mm. uh, but not an extremely flamboyant person. So, you know, he got trapped up and, you know, he gave us up. Yeah. Is that something you kind of see coming? Uh, I mean, only in that when you're in the business that long, you see so many people get in trouble. Yeah. I mean, the difference between being an outlaw and being a policeman is, is that the, you know, the police keep the information and you forget about it. But they have this, all of these bits of data. And uh, if you pop up at the right time, they can put it all together. Mm. I mean, when I finally got arrested, these guys, they weren't carrying attache cases, they were carrying overnight bags that were just packed full of things. You know, photographs of airplanes that we had had. Pictures one time when we landed a plane, apparently somebody had photographed it and turned the pictures over to uh, the authorities. This was in, uh, this was in Belize. We went to Belize a couple of times also. And in Belize, we actually landed on a, on a highway. And, you know, we had to block traffic for <laughs> five or 10 minutes. Uh, you were picking up there. Yeah, we were picking up there. And you landed on a highway in Belize. And the cops must have been paid off. And the cops were paid off, but one of the people waiting wasn't. And he took the photograph. The, tra the traffic was stopped. Right. <laughs> he ended up being some, you know, buddy who had some connections. And from there, that's how it went mm -hmm. down. Right. So in the, how long were you interrogated? Well, I mean... Fortunately, I was arrested six months before minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines. Uh -huh. And another thing that was to my advantage was that I was arrested for RICO, which is a white collar crime. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, I realized that color and class will always protect you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it it did well. It served me well to have be a white boy from the suburbs, even though when I got arrested, I was 38 or 39 years old. Yeah. 
Did you have money saved that you could use for lawyers? You know, I had, ironically enough, not much more than that. little bit of money that I had we used to pay the midwife for the birth of our daughter and that was basically the end of the funny money hmm. the funny money lasted about a couple of years after I got out of jail that's kind of a you know I nursed it right well, that's a pretty beautiful way to spend the last of it yeah we were very happy yeah how much, if if you're comfortable talking about it, how much money are we talking about, do you think, you made over those years? Oh, I'm sure I made over a million dollars. Right. You know? Yeah. Easily. But that's over, we're talking, what, seven years? A decade. Years, a decade. Eight years. Eight, so, nine years. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you spread it out like that and you look at the risk, it's really, it's not a huge amount of money. If you... If you were flying DC-3s full of cocaine into the country now, you'd be, you know, living on a yacht or in Supermax. Or in Supermax, yeah. yeah. What is, is RICO a money laundering? Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization. Uh, that's what they were using to try to get the mob. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how much time did you end up getting? I ended up doing a year at FCI Tallahassee. No shit, a in year? In the same town I went to graduate school in. Is and that a medium security, minimum? It's what was known as a level 3-4. In other words, it had guard towers, controlled movement, mm. barbed wire and all of that. Right. Uh, it was a prison built for bootleggers. Um, and when I was in it, it was filled primarily with smugglers. Mm. So it was a pretty mellow place to be. Uh, most of the people in there were finishing up their sentences. You know, so, nobody had more than four or five years. Right. So they they had something to lose. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But there was a controlled movement. You could only move, you know, during the times that you were granted permission to move. 
and there were counts all the time and, and you know builds character what part of your character did it build you know you learn to keep your mouth shut mm. mind your own business right don't overextend yourself was were those things that you needed to learn or uh did you already sort of have that worked no, out? You know, I was already an adult. And also in that line of, of business, I would think you want to be careful what you say and who you say it to anyway. For sure. You've got a lot. You're not going down to a bar and blabbing to people. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. So, so the, 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 so yeah, I get out of jail. Yeah. Uh, I had been living in Key West uh-huh. at the time. Uh, my sweetheart, who's now my wife, uh, after I got out of prison, we got together and have been together every day since. So you were together before you? We were, were yeah, we were lovers before, uh-huh. and. Uh, when I got out, she was standing there, and we've been together ever since. That's great. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ended up back here in California was because I was fortunately able to hire very good attorneys. And they were the ones who were smart enough to realize that there was no way I was going to be able to do parole in Florida. And they looked for an area that I had an affiliation with. And I had gone to school here and lived in Alameda County. And my lawyers were able to get my parole in Alameda County, which was perfect because Alameda County has a lot of criminals. And being a 40-year-old criminal uh, to most parole officers is good news. Mm. Uh, I was on parole here for five years, and it was uh, it was easier to do it in Alameda County than it would have been in Florida, that's for sure. What would have happened in Florida? What, what were they worried about? I mean, one thing, for example, is is that the parole officer that I had in Alameda County, he had been a parole officer for 20 years. And when I walked in his office the first time to see him, he had a big smile on his face. This man had a caseload of probably, you know, four or 500 criminals, mm. some of whom were getting arrested, rearrested. Um, and it was just easy. He knew I was going to be easy. I'd just gotten married. My wife was pregnant. Right. Yeah, you're not a high-risk kind of character at that at that age. Yeah, there are a lot of guys in prison in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And, it's just and they like, should be out. What the fuck? Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, when I was incarcerated, the prison population was probably a quarter of what it is today yeah and an awful lot of those people are in for drugs yeah minimum mandatory sentencing was incredible 
and as you say, it, it affects black people even more than white people. Yeah, crack. color and class will always protect you. Yeah, and money to hire lawyers. Yeah. I was, I've only been in Oakland for two days, and I've already seen two people in handcuffs. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. In the first, and that was yesterday, in like 24 hours. Hmm. I see cops everywhere, you know, people being let, let off in handcuffs. It's like a police state. It's, it's, I live in Spain most of the time, so when I come back to America, it's like almost a foreign country to me. Hmm. And, uh, and the, the, the militarization of policing here. Oh, it's, really, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you got off pretty well. I mean, a year oh, yeah. for an operation with yeah, 40 people. Yeah, if I had been arrested six months later, I would have done probably eight years. Yeah. Yeah. And that would have changed your life. And that would have changed my life. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you still in touch with any of the guys from, from the crew? No. That's part of your parole, I guess. That, well, I mean, you know, we all went through complicated scenarios. Right. Uh, when you look back on it now, how do you feel? Is it... You know, it was exciting. Yeah. Uh, my 30s were pretty much in the fast lane. Uh, you know, I was a single guy. It was, I was loving it. Living in Key West, flying all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> living on the edge so yeah I mean it almost sounds like like I've talked to some guys who were in the military and it almost sounds like that in a way you know you're like you're paying you're you're willing to to deal with the risk almost the inevitability that something bad's gonna happen eventually right you can't keep I mean how many people smuggle drugs for 40 years and then retire happily it just doesn't really work out that way no, I mean, there are undoubtedly some people who made smart investments and were able to mm. skirt getting in any serious trouble, but they're a real minimal. Yeah, because as you said, the temptation is always to get bigger and bigger and bigger. and It just happens. You're more That's exposed. capitalism. Yeah, yeah. So it couldn't, you think you're, you could never have, what was the name of the guy, the Sky, Sky King? Sky King. Sky King couldn't have just at a certain point said, no, this is as big as we're getting. We don't want to deal with more people. We actually, you know, we had that conversation. I, I can remember I was in Key West and I got a telephone call and two of my partners said, hey, fly up to Miami. I want you to meet this guy. We're thinking about going in the going in the business. I flew up. Uh, we had dinner together and then hung out in a hotel room for a while. And I remember that my vibe of this guy was not 100%. Not that I thought he was evil or a crook or anything. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, but the numbers were so good that we all said, okay, let's do it. And that was our downfall. That was the guy? Yeah. Ah. And, you know, like they say, if it looks 
too good, maybe it is. Right. Uh, and it was good, and everything went fine for over a year, year and a half. But then it yeah. just all went. So you don't think he was uh, he was an undercover? No, no. Yeah. He got he got swept up. Hmm. Uh, Did you ever get approached by someone who you sensed was an undercover agent? Oh yeah, we were in Antigua doing uh, trying to put together a scam. And this was what sometimes you'd work on a scam, you know, would work on things for months, setting it up. Just finding the supplies. Finding the supply, getting the plane, getting the fuel, getting the packaging, getting a drop zone in the United States, lining up, you know, all of the logistics. Uh, So we had been in Antigua probably two or three months. We had sent over, you know, we had bought an airplane that was on the island. Oh, it was a DC-6 also, actually. And we sent parts over to fix it up. And, you know, we had to pay off, uh, bribe, I guess is the word, uh, customs people to get these uh, aviation parts in to redo this this uh, airplane and we started getting approached by these guys who were pretty spooky and we just got together one night and said that's it we're out of here and we all just got up and left you figured they were agents well we figured they were probably cia types really and probably would have wanted us to do something nefarious for them to protect us. And we didn't want to get involved in that. Did you ever see any of that Air America stuff? Well, I mean, one of the groups that got arrested when I got arrested, I think there were five cells and I only knew one of the cells, but they all had get out of jail free cards. And we had been offered the same opportunity, uh, but didn't want to get involved in it. But what these guys did was they would fly to Hull's ranch. Do you remember Hull? Mm. Hull was the guy who had the ranch on the border of Costa Rica and oh, Nicaragua. I do remember that. Yeah, I remember reading about Olive, that. Oliver North was the guy. Right. So what they would do is they would uh, have the plane loaded up with weapons in the United States. Then they would fly to Hull's ranch, unload the weapons. Right, for the Contras. For the Contras, fly down the Columbia get a load, fly back to Hull's Ranch, refuel there, and then fly back into the United States. And they had a free pass to fly into the U.S.? Well, they didn't have a free pass to fly into the United States, but when they got arrested, Uh, they had a free pass. Right. In that, you know... All is forgiven. All is forgiven, yeah. And why didn't you guys go for that? You just didn't want to... You know, we just were... We were more the hippies. 
And that was some evil shit going on in Central America with that Reagan administration. I was in Guatemala for a while then. It was just fucking horrible what they were doing. The Contras. Yeah, people. a lot of people listening to this podcast probably aren't old enough to remember any of that. But that was some of the darkest stuff ever. You know, the whole Central American thing in the 80s was... And, and for nothing, you know, it was... It's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. I mean, they were the Soviets or whatever. They just, it's like Cuba. They just want to fucking feed people and educate them. And, you know, how is that the enemy? It's strange, strange times. Um, yeah, okay. So you, so that's, so you never got infiltrated. You never, uh, you just, and so that... It was too, too small a group. Yeah. And how do you, like, you're talking about putting together a scam. How do you just... Like, fly into Antigua and, and, like, who do you approach? How do you even start something like that? You know, it's sort of like you meet somebody who <laughs> mentions somebody. Is really Get you together casual? with somebody. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's different now if there's, like, this dark internet where everybody can check each other out before they actually meet or something. I doubt it. I think so. I, I mean, at some up. point, you still have to just go for it. Yeah, yeah. So now, here's my fantasy. I always had this fantasy that I, I would. And I'm too old now. This is when I was younger. But I had this idea that I would smuggle something once. I would do one big deal, and that would be it. Because they never catch you the first time, right? It's the, they're looking for patterns, and if you don't establish a pattern. Is that just bullshit? Well, I mean, it would have to be a really gigantic first one. Yeah. To and make it worth it. Yeah. The other thing is, is, you know, it's so exciting. For 10 years, I'd go, I had a, uh, an 800 number, and I'd go to my answering machine, and there'd be 40 or 50 messages on there. Or I'd call my 800 number and clear my messages on it, and it'd be the same thing, 20 or 30 messages. So there was, you know, it was, it was alive. Right. It was happening. Right. So what are you doing these days? Are you cool to talk about this? Yeah. yeah. So uh, fast forward, marijuana taken off in California. I wanted to find an entree into that world. Uh, my wife and I had made tinctures and salves the whole time we were together, and both of us had done medicinal medicines before we got together even. Mm. So it was a natural progression, and we have like 10 or 12 different products at the moment. We have... Uh, Tinctures, high CBD, high THC, high THCA tinctures, both in glycerin and grain alcohol. We have uh, a bomb that's sort of like, think hippie tiger bomb. Mm. It's like tiger bomb with cannabis in it. I think I got some of your stuff from our mutual friend. Oh. Is he, he distributes yeah. your stuff? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a bomb with a ball, a ball roller. No. Is that your stuff? No. He's and uh, we do honey. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we have some of this. And uh, honey. So yeah. it's a uh, cannabis infused honey. Cannabis infused honey. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that was possible. I, I've done the the oils and the the butters and all that. So you just mix this into tea or something? Yeah, exactly. And how do you how do you get the THC into the honey? Do you heat it? Yes, but not very hot. Right. And the belief is is that it binds itself to the pollen. Ah, okay. Because there's no fat. Because there's nothing in honey. Right. Uh, It's sort of a mystery. All of this stuff is a mystery. Yeah. As we know, with with, uh, testing, there's still some things to, to, to be understood. Yeah. The minute someone does a monoculture of cannabis, it's going to degrade mm. it'll be like bananas or something right and bananas happen to be in a real mess right now yeah, I'm exactly. sure you've heard the Cavendish now has a is suffering a disease that affected all the bananas yeah before the Cavendish and right. now the Cavendish gets it and they believe that most of the bananas are going to be wiped out pretty yeah. soon you ever you ever heard of um, Richard Schulte's Richard Evans Schultes, who's a, a ethnobotanist at Harvard. Wade Davis, do you know him? Wade Davis. I mean, Schultes' name is familiar, but I think well, he's a really interesting guy. He he um, worked. I guess the peak of his career, he was in the Amazon uh, for twenty or twenty-five years, uh, studying plants and particularly psychoactive plants. He wrote. Um, a bunch of books. There's a beautiful book about him, which I recommend all the time, called One River, written by Wade Davis, who's an anthropologist who studied with him at Harvard. But anyway, Richard Evans Schultes, he, he um, was the first to identify thousands of species of plants in the Amazon and, and probably dozens of psycho, psychoactive plants. Um, but in, in One River, Wade Davis makes the point that um, Schultes showed that exactly what you're talking about where rubber plants um, they've made a monoculture of rubber right and there's this whole drama where you know Manaus was the richest city in the world for a while for 10 years or something and then they finally figured out how to get the rubber seedlings out of the Amazon and they got them planted in Malaysia and then it took off and they wiped out the market you know the control of the market that they had in the Amazon for the wild rubber but so all the rubber plantations in the world um, are one genetic variety and it's extremely vulnerable to fungal infection. And, uh, and I, it's been a while since I read it, but I think he said that all the aircraft tires in the world are made from natural rubber because the artificial rubber that we have on our cars can't withstand the temperature of landing. So all the aircraft tires and also all the, I think it's the, the insulation on high uh, voltage electrical cables is also natural rubber. And it all comes from those plantations, from one distinct species of rubber plant. So, I mean, if terrorists really wanted to fuck up things, they'd fly over rubber plantations in Malaysia, dropping these fungal spores, and the whole world would come to a stop, you know, because 
as you say with the bananas we're reliant on one specific plant and there's no variety there's no resilience because of the monoculture I mean I think it's really important to have room for small manufacturers small growers having everything controlled by a small group of people is not going to serve us well and it's going to slow down the future. I think the way to keep the future really positive is to keep it open to mm. as many people as possible so right. that we can see what the possibilities are. Right. We've discovered that, you know, the cannabis is an amazing plant and our human nature even correlates with it. You know, we have correlates in, in our physical being that are cannabinoid in nature. Yeah. And we have a lot to learn. Mm. And we're not going to do it with the same crew of rich white men controlling it. Such a cool guy. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I was really um, honored that he trusted me and invited me into his house. And uh, and uh, then when I left, he gave me a bunch of gifts, lots of balms and salves and honey and all this great stuff. Um, really cool guy, Charles. And uh, I wish him well. If you hear this, Charles, thank you again for agreeing to do this. All right, that's it for the podcast. I uh, I inadvertently deleted the uh, outro that I had pre-recorded, <laughs> which is why I'm doing this one live-ish. Maybe I'll uh, I'll find it and dig it out, and you'll hear that again next week. So thanks to everybody. Thanks to Carsey Blanton, whose song you are about to hear. Thanks to Basin and Range for the intro music that you heard up at the beginning. And thanks to everybody that I uh, normally don't need to remember to thank because it's on the pre-recorded outro. And here's to you, Ben. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation say
to the ground. 